Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in the Gospel of John in chapter 18, if you want to begin to make your way there. The Gospel of John, chapter 18 and verses 1 through 11. Over the last seven and a half years, we have been making our way uh, systematically through the Gospel of John as we've done the Lord's Supper together to give us a break from our normal course of study and also to tether us to a Gospel account as we've walk through this. And so here we are today picking up in uh, chapter 18 and verses 1 through 11. The summer of my junior year of college, I was down visiting Valerie's family and uh, weekend was over and so I had to go back. I had to work there in College Station and I was waiting tables at Texas Roadhouse at the time. And, uh, and so just kind of mindlessly going about this drive from Kingwood, Texas to College Station, Texas, and, and I come up to an intersection. At that intersection, I'm sitting there, and, and, and I've got a choice to make. I can either go straight and stay on Highway 242, or I can go to the right and I can take I-45 north. And it's an inconsequential decision. Nothing changes based on this decision. I didn't want to drive through the woodlands because I was feeling in that moment like they were particularly snobby. And so I headed north to the sweet people of Conroe. And so I'm headed north on I-45, and I get on the feeder, and I'm going to the feeder, and here comes the on-ramp. And I see the on-ramp come, and I think, yeah, I've just got one more exit. I'll just cruise on the, the service road. And so I'm just going up through there. And so I make it almost to the next place where I'm getting ready to take the exit to loop back over and to head west on 1488 to head back to College Station. And then all of a sudden, through the construction cones, bam! A three-quarter ton pickup truck struck the left side of my tiny two-door Honda Civic. And it struck me with such force that it blew the tires out on the passenger side that it sent the side view mirror through the glass into my head blood on the top of my car, me dizzy, wondering what in the world had gone on. Man, it was bad luck. It was a consequence of uh, just choosing to go north when I could have gone north and west. And in that moment, I was powerless to change anything, and I was experiencing the effect of being powerless in that moment. In the, the days and weeks while I waited on my car to be repaired for the six months or whatever that it took them to repair the car, they should have certainly totaled. There's my insurance guy. It's certainly totaled. I, I, I thought a number of times about what if I had just gone straight? What if I had just stayed on 242 and I hadn't gone 45 north? How different things would have been. I, I would have made that shift. Things would have been different. I wouldn't have had the, the scar right here by the side of my eye. I would have had a radically different experience. When we read through the Gospels and we encounter Jesus heading towards the end of his earthly ministry, and he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and the soldiers come, and he is betrayed, and he's handed over, there occurs in our minds, because our normative experience is to recognize that, that most of what we experience is seemingly happenstance. It's, it's, it's seemingly uh, just, just kind of unfolding before us, and we are powerless to change. And so we find a lot of times that we look back in the past and think, if I could have made this decision differently, things would have rolled out. But we don't have that ability, do we? We're stuck in the year 2020, which is such an ironic thing. How many of us would have done 2019 differently to prepare us for 2020? 
But Jesus, as he finds himself in the middle of these things, is not purposeless. Jesus, as he finds himself in the middle of these things, is not powerless. Jesus, as we'll see in John 18 and following forward, is full of purpose and has all power. Look at verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, and so he's talking about the sum teaching from chapters 14 through all the way to the completion of chapter 17, this teaching, this discourse he had in the upper room with the disciples, when he had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And so Jesus gathers in what Luke records and other gospel writers record is the Garden of Gethsemane in this place where Luke describes in in Luke chapter 22 where Jesus was wrought with prayer. He prayed with such fervency. He prayed with such dedication. He prayed with such energy that his, his sweat was as blood pouring down from his brow. Angels are ministering to him in this place. And the disciples are catching periodic catnaps in between Jesus coming over and saying, Guys, can't you wake up? Can't you stay with me a while? He heads in to the garden. Now, in that, John gives us a significant term that we should not overlook in describing Jesus heading into a garden and leaving it nameless. He calls us and beckons us to recognize the importance of the garden imagery throughout Scripture. You see, in Genesis chapter 2, God, in the midst of a garden, created a man and he placed him in the midst of a garden. And then in Genesis chapter 3, what we find is in the midst of this garden, the one to whom God had given life would bring death. And so here Jesus is at the end of his earthly ministry, heading again into a garden, fully alive, but ready to embrace death so that you and I might finally live. He's fundamentally changing the paradigm of experience for humanity who had experienced death from Adam, which had reigned from Adam to Jesus. But in Jesus, death would no longer reign. In Jesus, his death would bring life and life eternal. So this this seemingly insignificant event, he purposes to bring life through his death by heading in to a garden. Verse 2 says, Now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas, you'll remember, bails on Jesus in John chapter 13. Jesus is in the midst of this great teaching event. He's washing the disciples' feet. They're sitting around. He's breaking the bread. He's describing. He says, listen, one of you is going to betray me. Judas jumps up from the table and he walks out. We knew in that moment that Judas would betray Jesus. We find all along in the Gospels, every time Judas' name is mentioned, Judas, the one who would betray. Judas, the one who would betray. And in John chapter 13, he becomes not just the one who would, be, would betray, but the one who is in the midst of betraying. Judas also knew the place. And so Judas has gone and he's secured financial backing and he has secured brute force to take Jesus captive. Verse 3 says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers with the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus purposed to enter into the garden. Now, when Jesus enters into that garden, when he steps over into this Kidron Valley, into the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows the soldiers are on their way. 
Now, I don't know what your mind is populating and what, what images are popping in there and what this scene looks like, but Judas doesn't show up with just a couple of dozen guys. The word there could actually be taken, this band of soldiers that he brings could be somewhere between 200 and 600 soldiers. So just think about that. Think about that for a moment. Jesus, with his 11 disciples, now enters into this garden. Jesus is praying to the Father, saying, Father, is there any way that this cup might pass from me? Not my will, but your will be done. All the while, a couple hundred men are making their way with torches, with lanterns, with clubs, with swords. Judas leading the path. Judas says, come on, I know where he's at. Follow me. Let's go this way. Step through the valley. Come on up this hill. Step to the orchard. This is where he normally gathers. And the disciples and Jesus begin to hear the roar of the men and the grunts and the stomps of their feet as they begin to make their way to the place where Jesus has just been spending time with the Father, preparing the hearts of the disciples for what would come. And in that moment, Jesus has purpose. And in that moment, he prepares to display his power. Verse 4 says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Can you think of the power in that moment? The grace and majesty of his question. When facing a couple hundred soldiers heavily heavily armed and, and coming into the midst of this scenario, they are severely outnumbered. Jesus and a couple and, and a dozen or so men, and in this moment, Jesus steps forward, he steps to the head of the pack, and he says, Whom do you seek? Seeking to bring Jesus into place, seeking to help him to understand how low in the totem pole of things they are. They throw his his town of birth in. They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' response is simple. In the Greek, he says, ego a me, I am. Jesus asks us to remember Moses' engagement with the Lord in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, where Moses said, listen, when I go back to Egypt and they ask who sent me, you say, I am. Make no mistake, in this moment, Jesus was testifying to his divine stature. In this moment, Jesus was testifying that he himself is God. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus steps forward and says, Whom do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. We find that Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Judas has clearly changed sides. The man who once stood with Jesus carrying the money pouch now stands with the soldiers coming in force to force Jesus into subjection. Look at what it says. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they have an interesting response. It says, when he said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Philippians 2.10 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And what we see here in John chapter 18 and verse 6 is a precursor to that ultimate event. When Jesus says, I am he, he's not just saying, I'm the guy you're looking for. When he says, I am he, he's testifying to his goodness. He's testifying to his divinity. And when they feel the weight, when they experience the force, when they discover the magnitude of those words, their only response is to fall down on their faces. 
Jesus was not purposeless in being in the garden that night. And Jesus' power is unfolding before them, and he hits them fully, squarely with the power of his word, his word which upholds the universe by the power of his might there in Hebrews. Jesus, in speaking and declaring who he is, met all those hundreds of men and brought them to nothing. The disciples standing by, and they're just wondering how these things are going to unfold. And all these men who, who are caught up in this sense of bravado, hundreds of men carrying torches and lanterns and swords and clubs, when they heard his declaration of who he is, were powerless to stand against Jesus. What a moment. So Jesus standing there, he says, I am he. They all fall down, and Jesus, not one to let the conversation get away with him, says again to them, whom do you seek? They recover and they respond again, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Now what is significant about this? You see, there's this understanding that, that if they're just to gather Jesus, if they're just to take him and just to bring him in, then his disciples and his followers could carry on in his name. So Jesus is unwilling to violate the commitment that he's made to the Father. And this is why he goes on to say, he says, let these men go. This was said to fulfill the word that he had spoken back in John chapter 17 and verse 12. Of those whom you gave me, I've lost not one. Jesus shows his power and his purpose over the horde. Jesus shows his power and his purpose. These men who had come to take all the disciples in Jesus captive. And Jesus says, if I submit myself to you, you let these men go. He was securing for his disciples their safety. He was securing for his disciples a future ministry. And he was securing for you and I the gospel. Showing his purpose and showing his power and dictating to this crowd how things would transpire says, if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus shows terrific purpose and amazing power in dictating to these hundreds of men exactly how these things would unfold. He wasn't lost in this moment. He wasn't confused in this moment. He wasn't trying to decide what the best course of action would be. He wasn't waffling in this moment. He wasn't putting forward a question, hey, if it's not too much of an imposition. He wasn't saying to them, listen, if I just humbly come, he was in some sense taking these men who had come to arrest him and he was arresting them with his words saying, if I am who you seek, let these men go. Jesus' purpose and his power would not be thwarted. It would not be interfered with. Now Peter, Peter never wanted to mistake the intention of Jesus, right? Peter the first to declare Jesus as the Christ, and, and Jesus says, well done, Simon Peter, flesh and blood has not uh, given this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter says, woo, me and God, we're in. And Jesus says, listen, I need to go, and I need to be handed over, and I need to be betrayed. The Son of Man needs to die. And Peter says, not on my watch. It's not happening. Jesus, that sounds like a crazy purpose. It sounds like a terrible plan. Old Pete's never going to let it happen. What's Jesus' response to Peter? He says, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter misunderstood the purpose and the plan and the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus is perfectly displayed in his humble submission to death. 
The power of Jesus is perfectly displayed in his brokenness. The power of Jesus is perfectly displayed in letting powerless men take the all-powerful Son of God, take the all-powerful second person of the Trinity into faux captivity. He could have destroyed their bonds. He could have been delivered by a host of angels. He could have caused all of them to bow on their face and to stay down. But the powerful one, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, allowed himself to be taken. But Peter in that moment, have you ever been watching something tense unfold and you're not really sure what to do and you're not really sure what to say? You just know you want to do something And then you find yourself doing something or blurting out something or cheering for something and everybody just kind of turns around and looks at you like, bro, that was not the right time. That was not the right course of action. This sounds like most Wednesdays for me. But what we see in the midst of this is that Peter's there and he sees the torches and he sees sees the glow of them upon Jesus. He's heard what Jesus has said. He saw how they responded initially. And then he sees that Jesus is covering for him and Peter is unwilling to be covered for just like Peter was unwilling to allow Jesus to wash his feet at first. So Peter, what does he do? He pulls out a short dagger. He reaches forward and he stabs blindly. He stabs blindly, and, and this text can be interpreted to mean that he cut the man's earlobe off. Not his whole ear, just a little bit. Like he could never wear an earring again right there. He's going to have to get it pierced up here in the cartilage. And so that's what Peter had done to him. So Simon Peter having a sword, the short dagger, not a broad sword. Peter's not like, no! He's more like, no! It's a glorified Swiss Army knife. He drew it out and he artfully struck him in the earlobe. And it falls to the ground. And John takes the care and provision to tell us that the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus says to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? It's fascinating that in this moment, Jesus, his care in provision. His care and provision, the Gospels record for one who was insignificant. We covered the issue of slavery as we made our way through Colossians, and in the first century, you could do almost anything you wanted to a slave, and nobody would care, nobody would raise a fuss. So Peter, in his attack on this servant, on this slave of the high priest, and doing damage to him, the hundreds of men gathered around, they'd look at it and say, well, it doesn't matter, it's just Malchus, it doesn't matter. But Jesus reaches over, and he touches his ear, and he heals him. Jesus gives us an indication there, ever so subtly, of his care for even those the world deems insignificant. Jesus was not caught up being too busy with the unfolding cosmic purpose of the universe, his very purpose, the reason that he had come in this moment. He approaches Malchus tenderly in this moment. He he serves one whose society would say is unworthy to be served in this moment. Jesus takes this opportunity to display what true power looks like on display. True power doesn't look for people to run over. True power looks for the powerless and seeks to serve them. And he turns to Peter and he chastises him for being so quick to draw a sword in this moment. Peter failed to recognize the purpose and the power of Jesus. 
Jesus came into the garden for the purpose of surrendering himself to the horde. Jesus came into the garden so that his power might be on display. Now listen, our lives over the last few months, we have felt purposeless. Many of us have experienced the difficulties that we've gone through over the last few months, and we've wondered what purpose is there, for what purpose has God called us to this time? And so we find ourselves going from from this instruction to that instruction and this response to that response. And then we find ourselves several months later finding out those are bad directions to follow. And we do some other such thing. Trying to find some sense of normalcy. Trying to find some sense of direction. And the question that rolls around in our minds over and over again, it becomes, what purpose does God have for us? What purpose does he have for us? God's purpose for you is that you would always glorify him in all things. God's purpose for you in the difficulties of life is not that you would look at them and say, these are terrible, he must care nothing for me. But his purpose for you as you experience the difficulties of this life are to bring you to the point where you recognize that he alone is powerful and that you only are powerless. There's terrific beauty in weakness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, I, in, his, in my weakness, I find strength. And that's one of the things that God is showing us in this, that his grace is sufficient for us and that, our power is made, that his power is made perfect in our weakness. Don't miss the purposes and the plans that God has for you in this time being caught up in the frustration that it's not what you wanted. I have frequently found myself leaning towards, heading towards experiencing frustration at my response and the response of others in this time. The temptation for me is to think, God, could you just speed this up? Can we just get to the other side of November the 3rd? Can we just get to the other side of this day? Can we just get to the other side of that day? And 2020 is the gift that keeps on giving. Whoever among us keeps wishing that things would move quickly, please stop. Like, is $20 a week enough to get you to stop? We'll raise money. Not much. I mean, I don't really think it's your fault. Let's not miss the purpose that God has us for. If we believe God to be sovereign, if we believe him to be overall then we must also believe that his purpose is to have us in this time. For some of us, this time is exposing terrific weakness and sinfulness. And God in his grace and his mercy comes near us with his power. And he lifts us up. God is systematically moving through and exposing that in our lives, in our churches, and in our society. Let us not miss his purpose. And let us not seek to be independently powerful. Christian, one of the reasons I believe that God sent his son in the midst of these things 
He took the most powerful person that we could imagine, the second person of the Trinity, and he submitted himself to men who, who assumed themselves to be powerful so that you and I would be comfortable in weakness. Power does not look good on those who should strive for humility. Power engenders in us, it creates in us a sense of pride and self-sufficiency. If we are to be faithful followers of Jesus, it requires of us that we be broken. It requires of us that we confess our weariness, our failure, and our disappointment. And we come to the one whose purpose is enduring. And we come to the one whose power never fails. What a beautiful picture that we can testify to this world. Not that I, not that this church, and not that you are sufficient to live in the midst of these difficult times. But we in brokenness, we in humility, we in powerlessness, serve a Savior whose purpose and whose power is perfectly timed for this occasion. Let us submit ourselves to him. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you give us an opportunity to struggle with our purpose, to confess our powerlessness, And we meet you, the creator God of the universe, displaying your perfect power, unfolding your purposes. And God, I pray that we would be content in these things. Father, I pray for the men and women and children in this space, in this room, who are struggling not knowing what to do next, and they're struggling with a sense of powerlessness. That they would rest in your grace, that they would trust in your purpose, and that they would submit themselves so that they might be able to be lifted up by your power. Father, we entrust this time to you as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. And we pray that your life would be glorified. God, that you would be honored in this place as we submit ourselves to you. In Christ's name, amen.